for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bibles with me today and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're in a series entitled United Together for the Gospel and we're laboring for one great aim and that is to live as a people united in the gospel of Jesus Christ for unity fuels God's people for kingdom mission in the world. The first six chapters of 1 Corinthians have set forth the gospel and how it is that it unites us to live for God's kingdom mission in the world. It helps us to apply as we understand a cross forged, the word of the cross, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, or what we call today so often a gospel-centered understanding. It helps us to apply a word-shaped, a biblical, a spirit-led application that we might remain united with God and together with one another. And when we got to chapter 7, Paul began to take these foundational elements that he instructed us in and began to apply them to specific situations and questions that were arising from the church in Corinth. And he instructs us how it is that we apply this gospel-centered, biblically faithful, spirit-filled, spirit-led life into address every situation in which we encounter. And so he uh, addresses a variety of issues, and chapter 8 is a continuation of that as he instructs us to apply this biblically faithful, gospel-centered, kingdom-minded understanding to all of life. And really chapters 8, 9, and 10, so the next several weeks for us will be a continuation, not of the same situation, but of the same topic, the same theme for us. And hopefully today will be the beginning of laying a foundation to address culture and how Christians engage culture without losing the gospel. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The title of today's message is True Liberty, that we're free to sacrifice for mission. And we're going to address how it is that we handle the Christian liberties that we have because we've been saved and how we rightly steward them to serve God faithfully in all So today we begin to address this issue. Now when I talk about rights, don't confuse them as the same thing as the rights uh, as a citizen of a country formerly known as a democracy. Come on. That's funny. That's really funny. It also reminds me that you need to vote Tuesday. That's important, and I do believe that Scripture is very clear. It's a Christian responsibility as a faithful citizen of the world in which we live to uh, fulfill that duty as a citizen. So be sure and vote this Tuesday. I'll try a different joke later, maybe. 
<clears throat> so we will uh, look now at 1 Corinthians 8. You've, raffled, you've ruffled me, I mean. I, I'm not sure what to do next. 1 Corinthians 8. Let me read the word for us. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. I want to look today at true liberty, what it is that we have as Christians because of what Christ has done for us. And I want you to see today that Christians take care that our rights of liberty never create a stumbling block to a faithful witness. We take care that our rights of liberty in Christ Jesus never create a stumbling block to a faithful witness. Witness, And so I want us to see this today um, through, really through three components. The first one is I'm going to set down a foundational principle for you. Second of all, I believe what Paul does is establishes a faithful confession. And then finally, we'll conclude with a careful application. First of all, let's move to a foundational principle for the Christian life. Love is the foundational principle of the Christian life. Love. It's not greater than, it's not something beyond or more than, it's simply love. Let, let me help you understand why it is that love is the foundational principle for the Christian life. First of all, love establishes the Christian's identity in God. First John tells us so adequately, specifically chapters 3 and 4, how it is that love is the foundational principle of the Christian life. But First John chapter 3 verse 1 establishes, first of all, our Christian identity in Christ. He says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You see, God's love for us, 
that saves us, that redeems us, that adopts us, that ransoms us, does not only take us from where we are and move us somewhere else, but it takes us from where we are in the kingdom of darkness, enslaved to sin, and it brings us into his kingdom of light. We come into the family of God. We're adopted. And that's what John says. And this is what we are. That's a B verb. That's our identity, friends. This is the essence. This is the foundation of the Christian life. Our new identity. And we learn of God's love over and over again in Scripture. John 3.16 may be one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. Begins how? For God so loved the world. This love from God is the Christian's defining principle because the Scripture presents it as God's defining motivation. We have been greatly loved by God. We want every Christian to live fully in God's love and we want the whole world to know of this love in which we live. So love is the foundation for a faithful Christian witness. The second thing we see though is that God's love for us provides the foundation for our love for one another. You see, love is the foundational principle of the Christian life, not only because our identity is established in God's love, but also because God's love for us provides the foundation for us to love one another. First John goes on to say in chapter 4, verses 7 and 11, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, it's not from us. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So when we love, we demonstrate to one another that we know God. Not head knowledge, but full life knowledge, relational knowledge. And so loving other people is proof that we know God. That we have received His love. And he goes on to say, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When we've genuinely and truly received God's love, we can't help but love other people. That is the full understanding of God's love. And then also, love from God establishes us in Christian fellowship within community. Listen to 1 John back chapter 3 and in verse 11 when it says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another another. And when John says from the beginning, he's not just talking about when he started talking. He's talking about from the beginning, like the same beginning of Genesis 1. From the beginning, this is the message that we have heard. This is the eternal message of God from his very nature and from his very character. Hebrews 13, 11 also tells us and encourages us, let brotherly love continue. So there is never a moment when it ceases. And so Paul addresses a question that's been posed to him involving people in Corinth that are eating food. Specifically, this is people eating meat, which was more of a rarity in that day than it is in our day and time. And it was meat that was offered in idol temples. And so some meat 
from the animal sacrifices of idol temples. Here's what would happen. They would bring their animal sacrifices. They would make sacrifices on their altars. And and the portions of the body and the meat that would be used as part of the sacrifice would be consumed. So some people would actually eat meals as part of the sacrificial system. And then some of the meat would be given to the pagan priests who would take that and that would be their own provision. And then extra meat from that would be then just sold into the marketplace in order to fund the pagan temples. And so as you walked through the marketplace, you could be fairly certain that the meat that was being sold in the marketplace, or what we would consider the grocery store today, had already been used in a pagan sacrifice at some point in the past. Maybe not 100%, but the vast majority of times. Because most people in these days didn't just have meat with every meal or even most meals in which they ate. And so some meat from animals in temple sacrifices would be sold in the markets. And even though the meat in the market had no direct association with the temple sacrifice, in other words, even though they were eating meat that had come from there, they didn't see any association with the idol temple in their purchasing and consuming that meat. But it still caused some people a conflict of conscience. And that's what he means when he says food offered to idols or food sacrificed to idols. At some point, the meat had been used in an idol temple in the past. But he also infers that some were still eating in the pagan temples. Even though they didn't believe in the idols, it was like their favorite restaurant and they just couldn't stop going there. And if you look at the layout of many of these pagan temples, you'll see that there was a place where they worshipped, but behind those places, somewhat underground, there were these more intimate rooms that might seat 10, 12, 15 people around a table, and the cook would be in the middle, and he would prepare the meat on the stove in the middle, and so they were more intimate Uh, uh, sessions of communing around the food. And some of the Christians continued to frequent the idol temples because they enjoyed the meals that they took from there. Now you can see how some would struggle with that. Why do you keep going to the idol temples if you claim not to believe what they are espousing from that meat? But for some of the Christians, it wasn't an issue with their conscience. And here's what Paul is saying. The problem was not that they were sinning in their eating. Okay? That's important for us today. Whether they bought it in the market or whether they even went into the idol temple and ate. Paul is not taking issue that either of those practices were sin. Rather... He is taking issue that their practice was causing problems for other Christians whose knowledge of the idols condemned them. I'm going to let that sink in for just a moment. Here's what Paul says. Paul states that all of us possess knowledge. And, and, And this was likely a word that they had used to address the issue in their letter to him. Yes, we all possess knowledge, he says. And many were likely arguing that their 
right knowledge was sufficient for their salvation. In other words, I know the truth and that's all that I have to do to satisfy my salvation. That's not that far removed from you and I today in a, in a culture of Christianity. When a lot of people can throw the same lingo around that Christians throw around but mean something totally different or it not have any impact on the way they live their life, that's pretty close to what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 8 here. They had the lingo down, but the lingo had no hold in making a difference in their life. And so they reveled in this new knowledge. And many of them, while continuing their old practices. So we might say they wore the label of Christianity. But it made no difference in their life. But knowledge, friends, is not the greatest good, Paul says. All knowledge on the earth, at best, is limited. You see, not even in Christian fellowship, in Christian community, knowledge is not the highest aim of Christian growth and maturity. I've said this I don't know how many times and how many different ways. But this is another angle at getting to my statement that says sometimes your bloated Bible study can be one of the worst practices that you engage in. Not because a Bible study is wrong, but because it's causing you to believe something about yourself that's wrong. When you use Bible study to justify separating and having to love other people, Bible study actually becomes a problem for you, not a help. The Bible's not the problem. I hope you see that. And your pastor's not espousing that you do less Bible study unless you're using it to thwart other acts of obedience that God's calling you to. You see, what was happening is that knowledge was puffing them up. Causing them to become arrogant. And what does arrogance do to us? It causes us to become hard towards others. Here's what one commentator said that I felt like was really helpful. Knowledge is proud that it has learned so much. Wisdom is humble that it knows no more. That's such a great contrast to clarify this knowledge that Paul is speaking of in our minds. And so Paul presses the Corinthians toward Christian wisdom that appeals to a love for others. Why? Because love is the foundational principle of the Christian life. Knowledge is a necessary pathway to growth and maturity, but only living in godly wisdom demonstrates true Christian maturity. And that's what Paul is getting at here with the Corinthians. Paul contrasts the adverse effect of knowledge with the beneficial fruit of love. Knowledge puffs up, but what? Love does what? It builds up. And even as we've already seen in our our devotional reading this morning and in our singing, it is the building up of one another that we even gather for on a weekly basis. You see, greatness and faithfulness in God's kingdom is not measured by the bite capacity of the gray matter, but by the bandwidth of love for God and one another. It's not about how much we can hold here, even if we can adequately and accurately recite it upon demand. 
but rather it's about how much we know here bloats what is here so that it just spills out onto all that are around us. And knowledge of God's word that stops here is actually being filtered and perverted, infected, not used as God intended it. For the truth of God builds our hearts that we might love others more faithfully. Knowledge puffs up the individual who holds it. Love builds up all those who are around the one who gives it. And love is the foundational principle of the Christian life because it's how we know God and it's how we continually live in God. And so love for God and love for others is greater than any knowledge. Therefore, we can say that true knowledge of God is demonstrated by a genuine love for others. You cannot separate one from the other. Friends, let me pause here and try to apply this foundational principle to each of us in this moment. Does God's love for you and in you stir your heart to more sacrificially love others? It should. It should. Even in our quiet moments of devotion, when God reminds us of the way He loves us and the, the, the just, the ridiculous lavishness with which He loves us, when we stand up from that, it should compel us to want to go and to love others more, more faithfully, with, with greater generosity than we've ever loved before. Why? Because we've been loved in that way. That's the foundational principle of the Christian life. And so once Paul establishes this foundational principle, he moves to a foundational Christian doctrine. That's the second thing I want you to see today, is that Christians live by a faithful confession. A faithful confession that simply says there is no God but one. And Paul follows this up with a longer explanation when he says this, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. In other words, God created us and He gave us a purpose for being created. And He says, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You see, one God establishes our priority for our allegiance and for the commandments with which we will heed. There is no idol that compares or competes with Jesus. This is what he says. He says, these other gods, they're not real, even though some people believe they are real. We as Christians know that there's only one God. He is the Father who created us. And gave us a purpose for our life. And he sent his son Jesus Christ through whom we exist. And through whom we serve all things for his purpose and his good. And so this is the confession that establishes the Christian doctrine of what we would call the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. It is our new knowledge as Christians. And the exclusivity of Jesus Christ simply means that that in our day and time, there aren't many ways to God that Jesus is the only way to God. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. Not all roads lead to the same place. Jesus is the only way 
to God. That's our new knowledge as Christians. But it does not cause us to be what? Puffed up. It causes us to be what? Loved up. So that we can love out. You see, all the Christian life is a living confession that Jesus is supreme, that he alone is Lord. So we don't have to go and crucify all the false idols to try and prove them wrong. We just need to be built up in this new knowledge that Jesus is Lord and live out the love of his lordship that he has bestowed upon us. And he'll do all the proving of the falseness of the other idols that needs to be done. But this is what Paul is saying. He says that other gods have no real existence, but they have a type of existence. In other words, it's a temporary existence in this world. But that existence is not equal to our God. And for the Corinthian Christian, the issue was not meat. The issue was a faithful witness to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. You see, when a Christian anchors their life by confessing Jesus' lordship, it clarifies our conscience and it clarifies our, our conduct for who and for how we grant allegiance and worship in this world. Listen, if you're cloudy in your mind about who's the Lord of your life, you will live a life of cloudiness and application throughout your life. And friends, right Christian doctrine is important. But it's not just important to hold it. It's important to live it. Christian doctrine is more than just right knowledge. It's more than just knowing a right set of answers or a right set of facts. Christian doctrine is a life-bearing truth that is lived out in faithful obedience. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's contrasting the difference between knowledge that makes one hard with pride and truth that bears the fruit of faithfulness and love. That's what he's contrasting here. God the Father created us for His glory, and He gives a unique purpose to our life. I don't know anybody in life that I've ever met, and I believe will ever meet, that doesn't ask this question. Two most important days of your life, the day you're born, and the day you figure out why. Don't we all ask that? We ask the questions of life. That's why the gospel is so potent, friends. It answers them perfectly. And satisfies the longing of our hearts. He contrasts these. We're saved and we're redeemed through Jesus Christ. And now in him our whole life exists. Every decision that a Christian makes grows from this confession that Jesus is Lord. Our knowledge of Christian doctrine never elevates us above or separates us from others. But it always leads us to humbly bow in more faithful service. That's so important because as you look across the landscape of churchianity today, you'll see this, that the more you know, the less you have to deal with the people that don't, right? And nothing could be further from biblical truth. Nothing could be further from gospel faithfulness. Friends, I'll tell you what, the more anchored you are in the love of God, the more generous you will be and the more urgent and passionate you will be about loving people. And and listen, any other interpretation of the scripture just misses the point. 
Our knowledge of Christian doctrine never elevates us or separates us. Doctrine that elevates and separates gets it wrong every time. Doctrine that motivates to faithful service gets it right every time. The new Christian knowledge of Jesus' supreme lordship sets us free to live out a life-giving love and not some dead set of rituals or rules. That's what Paul's trying to redeem them from through his teaching of Jesus Christ. And so I want to pause with this foundational confession for us and I want to ask you this question again. Does your life demonstrate the confession that Jesus is Lord, that he is ruling every part of your life, that he is living for God's, that you are living for God's divine purpose and not for your own pleasures? Third component I want you to see today is this, that our confession never ignores the fact that not everyone believes the way we do. And this helps us understand how we make a faithful application. You see, for thirdly, Christians live by a careful application to build others up. And this is what he talks about, in, specifically in verses 7 through the end of the chapter 13. Christians, I love what he says in verse 8. We take care, take care in the way we live to demonstrate God's love and Jesus' Lordship, not everyone has the same knowledge that we have. And we don't say that arrogantly, friends. Rather, humbly. Paul states that through former association with idols, they eat food as an act of allegiance and worship of idols. This word association simply means that there was a participation in idolatry that they had. There was a practice, there was a habit, there was a pattern of their life that was engulfed in their idolatry. It's a kind of a relationship, except it's a relationship with an inanimate, non-alive object. That's what association is saying to us there. An association with idols always weakens and defiles our conscience. Now hear me, I'm going to bring this quickly into modern day. A person may think that the practices or patterns of their life have no effect upon them, that they can somehow go practice these things and it doesn't affect ultimately their life. But Paul says just the opposite to us, that sinful practice defiles a Godward conscience. Christian, beware lest you convince yourself that your hidden sin has no effect on the rest of your life. It defiles your God-saturated conscience and it prevents you from walking with God in other areas of your life. You may repeat an action of past faithfulness, but you will not perpetuate a life of growing faithfulness and walking with God. And the difference will be this. That the faithfulness that you repeat from the past because you are hiding sin in your life and harboring idols and false truths in your heart and false hopes in your heart, those 
past repetitions of faithfulness, if you understand what I'm saying. In other words, what you did in the past that you knew was faithful to God, but you're not doing it now out of love and faithfulness for God. You're trying to ritualize something you've done in the past. It will actually heap greater condemnation on you and lead you further away from God. You think you've got this Christian thing down, and I'm saying it has nothing to do with you. And when you live out your Christian life in your own strength, you only serve to hinder your relationship and cause greater distance between you and God. And you'll know it. God will feel farther from you. He will feel more silent to you, less powerful to you, more insignificant to you. And your sin and your circumstances and your struggles of life will seem overwhelming to you. That's how you know you're walking in past faithfulness and not present faithfulness. Corinthian Christians were still frequenting the dining halls in pagan temples. And Paul says this, the eating itself was not a problem for the Christian. But he teaches that our new knowledge, that because of Christ, Christ never allows us to disregard others who don't have the same knowledge that we have or who struggle with a weakness in their knowledge. You see, Christians take care that we use our rights of Christian liberties not for personal pleasure first, but rather to serve others in order to build them up. So Christians know that food does not commend us to God. We cannot be separated from nor brought closer to God because of food. That relationship with God is not determined by the food we eat or the food we don't eat. We're free to eat. We're free to not eat. But freedom from our knowledge should not cause us to dismiss those who believe in false idols. Christians remember that association with idols causes condemnation upon a person's conscience. Even when we cannot see it and even when we don't know it. And since we're no better off to partake of, nor are we hurt to sacrifice our liberty, the point becomes then, how is it that my actions serve others? That's what love leads us to ask. And Paul identifies two problems with the Christians continuing in this practice. First of all, their actions encourage others to eat. And many of those who are eating have weak consciences. And when those with weak consciences eat, their new conscience that's built by a growing, uh, that, that, that is being established in the truth of God's word and the love of God, this new conscience, even though the weakness of their former conscience without Christ continues to condemn them, they're trying to grow this new Christian life by Christian participation with that. But what's happening is the the lingerings of their old conscience continues to heap condemnation on them because their knowledge from past association is still active. That the food was sacrificed to idols. There's a real conflict of conscience that's going on inside them. And so instead of enjoying a clean conscience, they experience the pain of living in opposition to their conscience. I don't know about you, but nothing will steal your sleep faster than the pain of opposing your conscience. Nothing will steal your focus quicker than trying to live in opposition to your conscience. So one of two things is going to have to happen. You're either going to build 
a Christian conscience that has the presence of this new knowledge of Christ, but that keeps having layers of condemnation heaped in because of past knowledge. Or it's going to have to be cleansed. You see, even though they may know the idols are not real, their former association condemns their conscience. In other words, Christians partaking in the temple meals caused weaker Christians to build a conscience that was not cleansed. And what happens when a conscience is not cleansed but continually condemned is it begins to be what I'll call cauterized. You know what that is? You know what condemnation does to us, right? It burns. It burns us. Burns within us until it's dealt with. And when those layers of condemnation continue to be heaped upon this new knowledge in our conscience, it begins to cauterize us. We begin to think and believe that the way we live our Christian life is just to deal with that condemnation instead of letting Jesus deal with it. I'm telling you, friends, nothing is more difficult than living with a divided mind and a divided conscience in this way. It will not last. The conscience will either need to be cleansed by a full immersion in the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the conviction of sin and you confessing and repenting of that sin, calling it what it is, setting it aside and going, I turn away from that and I turn back to Jesus as Lord to receive and to live in the love of God and let Him cleanse your conscience. Or you continue to turn to it and to believe that God is as divided as your thinking of Him is. And when you do that, you become numb to the pain of your sin because you think it's normal. And it begins to numb you to the voice of God within you. Living in opposition to one's conscience creates an internal confusion that damages even one's own identity. Don't forget, don't forget the foundational principle of the Christian life is love. It establishes our identity. The foundational confession is that Jesus is Lord. And if we deny that confession... And we begin to cauterize that identity. We cannot live out of them. Paul states that the exercise of freedom from the Christian's new knowledge in Christ can actually destroy a Christian brother or sister because of this influence. And when sin, when we sin against our brothers or sisters in Christ, it's actually sin against God for us. Therefore, he concludes, he would never participate in a liberty that causes a fellow Christian to stumble in this way. Friends, I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes at the end here. Because what I'm explaining to you, I'm laying a foundation for the next couple of weeks. Because this doesn't get easier As you apply, situations get more complex, I believe, in life as we try to apply faithful gospel application in every context. But today, I want to conclude this sermon 
with an application for how the gospel and how God through the gospel intends to help you strengthen your conscience for God that you might live more faithfully in His Word. It talks about the high value of Christian fellowship and community. You see, sinful habits that were normal and pervasive before Christ in your life can often cause a lingering confusion or even a condemnation once a person is in Christ. Sometimes this confusion and condemnation is because our knowledge is not yet correct. We've got bad doctrine, and we need to clarify that doctrine. That's what discipleship is all about. That, that we are clear, that we understand the gospel is not about what we do to appease God so He will love us, but that God loves us. And it is out of that love in which we live, and therefore we can live for the full pleasure of God because His glory is our good. But it takes time sometimes to clarify that. This doesn't mean that a person isn't saved. It does mean that the gospel has to be applied specifically to an area of life in order for them to cultivate a new conscience that is in accordance with their new identity in Christ. And you see, salvation grants to us a new identification through relationship with Jesus to replace sin's condemnation that came from a knowledge by association through participation with idols. Got that? But transformation is not always immediate. It is always eternal and ongoing in this life. And neither is it always easy. Often, these former associations, because of your sinful practices, they can take years. Not everyone is immediately changed in an instant. They can take years to overcome. And sin cauterizes our conscience through this participation What God does by His grace when He cleanses our conscience is He comes in and He opens the flow that sin's condemnation caught our eyes. And He begins to apply the gospel and the glory of His truth to those areas of our life. But when the sin has cauterized the conscience through participation and creates a knowledge from association, it causes a confusion of identification. Instead of a person understanding that they were created for God, they believed that they were created for selfish indulgence and selfish pleasure through idolatry. And here, here comes in this high value of Christian community and Christian fellowship. This is why community and fellowship is so critical for every Christian, especially new believers. New life in Jesus Christ cultivates a clean conscience through participation with God's people. Instead of just an association with a dead, inanimate idol, we have a relationship with the living God that is lived out through community and the fellowship within it among the life-giving people of God for us. Listen, it's not just a symbol to us. It is a conduit a channel for God by his spirit to work in us that's what he tells us in first Corinthians 6 while unity and purity are so important in a church and that he redeems our knowledge of relationship with God this is spiritual growth and maturity that's why in Ephesians 4 he says therefore speaking the truth in love 
That, that is the conversation that must be constantly repeated in the church because we need the truth and we need it in love so that we can grow up into him who is the head. There is life that is coursing through the conversation of the congregation and it is essential to the Christian life. You will not sustain your life if you take yourself out of that congregation. And it reinforces not just our activity, but what? Our identity as a child of God. How many times have you shown up in church? And how many times have you shown up in community group or in fellowship with the people of God? And the week has been so hard. Your circumstances have been so heavy. You've forgotten how much God loves you. You've forgotten that you are a redeemed child of God. And just some offhand comment that someone makes, a prayer request that they offer, brings you right back into the world glow of God's precious love for you and you go everything makes sense right here right now even though it's not all okay but sometimes it's more convenient to live outside of that right you see we in Christian fellowship that we find in this community it, it reinforces that we are made new in Christ 2 Corinthians 5.17 Christians need community that cultivates fellowship to reinforce our identity in Jesus Christ. But hear me, friends. Christian community can destroy identity when Christians do not take care to serve one another more than they care about serving themselves. See, Christian fellowship consists of ministry and doctrine. Ministry is the activity of meeting needs, and doctrine is the new knowledge of right thinking and a clean conscience. And this ministry and this doctrine aims to build one another up. That's what Christians take care to do. That we might help one another. And even in Christian community, friends, we cherish and we honor the weakest among the fellowship because we labor until all have reached the unity of the faith. Until all have matured to full manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Say this with me. I am here for you. I am here for you. Do you believe that? Christians take care that rights of liberty never create a stumbling block but are always used to serve as a faithful witness. Let's pray. Father, sometimes, uh, sometimes principles seem cold. 
And they seem as though they don't satisfy the full demand of the things that we're wrestling with in our minds. The concerns that are sitting heavy upon our hearts. But here's the beauty of the principles of this life that you have established by the truth of your word. They're not cold words captured on a page. They are living truth alive within us in Jesus Christ. God, I genuinely believe that few Christians actually intend to harm other people by the way they live. But your word is clear when we're not intentional to live a gospel-centered, biblically faithful, kingdom-minded life by faith alone in Jesus, we do actually harm other people. And when we harm our brothers and sisters in Christ, we sin against you. So God, today, as your Spirit applies this specifically to each one of us, Lord, would you help us not to argue with you about whether our knowledge is right, not to beckon upon you to overlook this or forget that. Do we have to keep dealing with this? But rather just to sit before you because we know you love us. To let your love wash over us even as your conviction comes to us. And Lord, simply to open our hearts and to open our minds to what you want to do in our lives and to say yes. To humbly respond in faith to follow you as we walk. And for some, for some that conviction will come today not only for sin, but to walk in righteousness. You will show us a way and we'll look at it and go, God, I can't do that. May that be a confession that says, that's the point. Jesus says, Lord, wants to do that in you. And with the same humility, we say no to sin. We'll say yes by faith to Jesus Christ to follow you and to walk with you. God, grant us the grace to live as you've redeemed us to live. And we'll follow you by faith.